Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. My name is Tracy Ellis. Earlier this year, my essay, Flow States, won the 2023 Calibre Essay Prize. I was so thrilled to win this award. It's been a real honour. Now, the 2024 Calibre Prize is underway with a closing date of January 22. ABR is seeking essays of all kinds, personal or political, literary or speculative, traditional or experimental. This prize, open to writers in English around the world, is a wonderful opportunity for writers established or emerging. Full details appear on the ABR website. Good luck. For this week's ABR podcast, we feature one of the shortlisted entries in the 2023 Calibre Essay Prize, The Morning Belongs to Us, by Siobhan Kavanagh. With a strong narrative drive, The Morning Belongs to Us is told as a story set in a beach house. The freedom and levity of six young women is punctured when a car arrives at the house's front deck, ignition running. Kavanagh's essay is a masterclass in show, not tell. It's exploration of fear and predation achieved through subtext and pause. The Morning Belongs to Us was one of 11 shortlisted essays in the 17th year of the Calibre Prize. The 2024 Calibre Essay Prize, worth a total of $10,000, is now open for entries and will be closed on the 22nd of January 2024. We welcome entries of between 2,000 and 5,000 words written in English on any subject. Full details can be found on the ABR website. Here is Siobhan Kavanagh with The Morning Belongs to Us, published in the November issue of ABR. The Morning Belongs to Us We woke early that morning as the sun lit up the two shared bedrooms, three of us in each one. The thin, printed cotton curtains were no match for that kind of light. We were 18 years old. It was the first weekend of our first semester at university and we had come to the beach house armed with our readers and highlighters. After breakfast, we arranged our readers on the wide front deck. Total War in Europe, Torts, Introduction to Biology, French Cinema, Social Work Theory and Practice One. Reams of printed paper bound into packages of knowledge, which we believed would lead us to careers. With the deferred debt, it seemed like university was free. We had to get out of the house before we could study. We left our mobile phones at the beach house because everyone we wanted to talk to was right there. We walked slowly to the beach, up the steep gravel road, black wattle and silver banks here, lining the way. Branches stretched out into a blazing day. We passed the house at the top of the hill which overlooked the beach. That house is going to be demolished, one of us said, the one whose father owned the beach house we were staying at. The house on the hill was a beautiful, white, rambling weatherboard. To knock it down and build something bigger, with a tennis court apparently, was hard to fathom. 
We would never knock down something we managed to own. We were sure of that. Down the sandy slopes to the empty beach, dry, crackling shrubs underfoot. The waves rose and collapsed like breath and faltering. We stepped into the water and the salt stung our shaved legs. Seaweed looped around our feet and toes. It was too fresh to get right in. Some of us put suntan oil on, others lectured about wrinkles. Not so much cancer, but wrinkles were to be avoided. We lay on our beach towels and cast glances at each other's bared limbs, coveting the longest. One of us got a nosebleed from the heat. The claret red dropped onto the sand in ugly blotches. Loser, one of us joked, and we laughed, even the one with the nosebleed, which made blood spray out with force. When it was time to go, it was too hot, and we really did have to study. We peeled ourselves up and raced into the sea, up to our waists. Vast water and vast sky all at once in one morning. Back up the sandy slopes, past the to-be-demolished house, down the road to the beach house. We walked slowly with the pleasant tiredness of a hot day, then slumped on the deck and read the newspapers, played Uno and drank Earl Grey tea. We told each other things from the newspapers. One of us held up a page with John Howard's face on it. He was touring Ground Zero. We hated him. Everyone in our tutorials hated him. On the other page, flapping in the breeze, was a photo of an asylum seeker behind the wire at Woomera. Lips sewn, eyes burning. We shook our heads. We could vote for the first time at the next election. See you later, little Johnny, one of us sang, drawing horns on his head. Midday, high sun and cloudless. We had read all the good parts of the papers, so on to the readers. If we read and highlighted and annotated enough readers, we could be anything, we thought. A quiet hour passed, the heat intensifying. Then, the crunching sound of tyres on the gravel driveway. We were not expecting anyone. A dark red car, a little beaten up, drove towards us, slowly, in a way that made it look like a creature. The car stopped just in front of the deck, Handbrake pulled, but ignition running. Three of them, a couple of years older than us, we guessed. The driver was shirtless, tanned, with blonde, sun-bleached hair. The other two wore singlets. The one in the passenger seat had dark hair, and the one in the back seat had a cap on. They all wore sunglasses, the mirrored type, so we couldn't analyse their eyes. They looked at us with half-smiles. Words spilled from the corners of their narrow mouths, too quiet for us to hear. The passenger guy opened the car door and put one leg out. A stocky, fair, hairy leg. He was wearing red thongs. The guy in the back had his arm out the open window, drumming his fingertips on the roof of the car. A waiting sound. A watching sound. We noted these things. We can recall these details 20 years later. We didn't like them. We wanted them to go away, but didn't know how this could be achieved, or what they were capable of, or what they wanted. One of us, the one who always knew what to say, knew we were counting on her to do something. She slapped her Uno cards down on the deck and got up, 
She brushed sand off her singlet and drank slowly from her water bottle. She sighed. The imposition of this stuff. It was tiring. We could feel her move and we held our breath. She wandered over to the car. Hey, guys. Hey, the driver said. What are you girls up to? He was smoking, holding the cigarette out the window. Nothing much, just chilling, she said, gesturing back at us. We were not reading the papers or annotating our readers or drinking our tea. We were looking through them. We were sure they would smell of links and stale sweat. What are you guys up to? she asked back. As if we cared. But then, we had to care. If they got out of the car, what would that mean? Why did they have half smiles and narrow mouths? How far away were our phones? Was there anyone home at the soon-to-be-demolished house? Why did they think they could come here and make us feel this way? We knew no one ever made them feel this way. Nothing, the driver replied, a quick smile. Just chilling too. A silent stalemate ensued, probably only a minute, but a long one. High above in a gum tree, a cockatoo screeched, breaking the quiet. The sound was brash and grated through the density of us looking at them and them looking at us. We broke our gaze to look up and saw thousands of grey-green leaves dancing in the breeze and six cockatoos perched on branches, watching. The driver cocked his head towards his mate in the front seat. He said something low and half-laughing. The passenger's leg went in and the door closed, handbrake down. We could hear this little thing happen in the stillness. Catcher, the driver said. He let the cigarette, still alight, drop to the earth. He drove around the circular driveway and out, and we watched until we couldn't see the beaten-up red car any longer. The one of us who spoke to them came back to the deck and put her thongs on, then went and stubbed the cigarette out with her foot, stamped on it for far longer than was necessary. We raged at them for throwing a cigarette onto dry grass, a tinderbox in that heat. We were 18 years old and we were already tired of putting out fires that we hadn't started. We packed up our readers and made sandwiches for lunch. One of us rifled through the CD collection and pulled out Van Morrison. We yelled the G-L-O-R-I-A bit and decided it was time to open the Oyster Bay Sauvignon Blanc, a wine we were set on for some reason, although we really knew nothing about wine. We felt rattled, but no one felt it was worth talking about. We knew of a black hole in the galaxy that sucked in and held things like this. Like when one of us was followed in broad daylight and he said, I just had to follow you, as if that explained it. And when another of us was followed at dusk, the man emerging from parkland and fading away, only to emerge further down the path, exposed. And when another of us always felt her boss press into her at the cash register with a queue of customers watching, oblivious. And when hands wandered onto our legs in cinemas, trains, trams. And when another of us stood frozen in a lift aged seven, while an old man stroked her ponytail. And when our parents gave sympathetic shrugs, but never told us to do anything about any of this. 
We cracked open another Oyster Bay and we turned the music up. We returned to the beach house many times over the following years, during semester breaks, grey weekends in winter, over long summer days. Sometimes new friends and pets and partners joined, babies too, eventually. Other beach houses were bought and sold around it, knocked down and reconstructed, tennis courts and all. But this one was solid and straightforward. It needed no tinkering. It held within it our laughter and worries and late-night talks. It was a place of no plans, an all-grey tea, and deep sleep after being out in the sun. There was nothing like the feeling of driving out of the city towards it. Occasionally, one of us asks if the others remember the incident. We do. We wonder, did they pull up in other driveways? Did gravel crunch and compress under their tyres elsewhere, a slow prowl? Did any of them feel unease curdling in their stomach? We wonder if any of them remember this now, so many summers ago, and we begrudge the space it takes up in our minds and not theirs. We begrudge how the recollection can unsettle us still. And then we wait for the counterattack to snake through our minds. Really, come on now, nothing happened. It's hard to explain that such a nothing can be something. It's hard to explain the tiny aggressions, the familiar quickening heartbeat on any empty street at nightfall, how we appraise that walking track winding into secluded bush, how we hold our keys like a knife, how we are grateful for the alertness of our dogs, how we cry and seethe and say nothing at the stories we hear. Actually, not just streets at nightfall. It is bone-deep exhausting to know this. After the wine and the Van Morrison, there was no chance of going back to the readers. We had copped a bit of sunburn to the shoulders on that walk. We were slightly drunk, freckled, glowing young faces. We lay on the deck in the late heat of the day, cicadas whirring. We commented on the shapes of clouds, and we owned that afternoon. The next night, back in the city, we went to a party for a friend's birthday. It was at his dad's apartment in Collins Street and his dad was away. The building had a dysfunctional lift that sometimes stopped between floors, and we would feel a mild panic about being stuck in there forever, and would pass the time carving our initials into the walls with our keys. The lift would lurch to life, and we would laugh, as if we were never actually worried about being trapped. A new friend from university was there, and he had decks, so we pushed all the furniture against the walls to make a dance floor in the lounge room. When we needed a break from dancing, we burst onto the balcony where people were smoking and talking. We thought it was a great idea to sit on the balcony ledge, ten stories high and too many drinks in, and feel the thrill of the height and the lights of the city twinkling on our straight, strong backs. We didn't tell anyone what had happened, because there wasn't, on the surface, much to tell. We told ourselves, whenever it crossed our mind, that there was no need to be concerned about a man drumming his fingers on the roof of a car. Just drum, drum, drumming his fingers like that. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? 
subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.